What's up, world? This is Tarnisha Mosaz, your vision, empowerment, and extreme execution coach. And you are listening to Keeping the Tab. Easy world, easy world. It's your man, and Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it is another episode of Keeping the Tile. Thank you so much for rocking and moving with me as always. And it is good to have you in the building, in the mix with me, ladies and gentlemen. It is a new second. It's a new minute. It's a new hour. It's a new day. And therefore, it's a new round. And I need to make sure that you are still in this fight with me. But y'all, I am not in this alone. I got a sparring partner. And this is going to be good. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's what I need you to do is make sure that you get your seat and gather around the ring because I promise you, you're going to love this one. All the way from the Garden State, Brick City, coming in at a weight of none of your business, my girl, Miss Tarnisha Mosas. Tarnisha Mosas, are you in the building, my girl? I am in the building. I'm in the building. What's going on, my guy? What is going on? Yes. Y'all, she is here, she is here. So, Mo, this is what I need you to do is go ahead and get your hands wrapped, get your gloves on, get your mouthpiece in your mouth, get your headgear on, and that knock you hear is to get out of your dress room and make your way to the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, those of you who just walked into the door, yes, go and gather a seat and gather around the ring. It is Aunt Boogie and Mo Sass, and this bar session has started. Let's get it, let's get it, let's get it. So, Mo, let's go ahead and let's slide up in this 1990-something Acura. And we're going to rewind this tape back to 19-something. And then we are going to start from the genesis of Miss Tarnisha Sass. The genesis. Wow. I would say that I am a... My, my, my parents, let's start with my parents, right? So I was raised in the house with both my parents, my mother and my father. I have a older brother, younger sister. So I'm the middle child, y'all. I'm just telling you right now, middle child, full of mischief. She wanted all the smoke from her parents and everybody else, right? That's the genesis of most life. She wanted all the smoke when she was a child. That means... If it was to be said, she was going to say it. If it was going to be done, she was going to do it. Right, wrong, didn't make a difference. <laughs> I'm just going to rebel and do what it is that I want to do. That's how, listen, that's how I started, y'all. I started off in the, with a very, people say rebellious spirit, but I always say that just was wise beyond my years and kind of had a head on me that knew like I was going to, do something different. I was gonna be something different. Um, I, I think I knew that from a very young age, although it didn't quite show. I'll just say that I, I spent a lot of time fighting. Not proud of that, right? A lot of time fighting. I was in them streets. <laughs> okay, I, was, I was the girl coming home with the knees all messed up in the pants, right? You know, elbows all scraped up. You know, the, the, the one story that gets told about me often is me, my parents had us, and we started off in Irvington, New Jersey, and we went to a Catholic school. My aunt, we, my aunt who was, she's a few years older than me and my brother, we had to take the bus. And they always talk about how my aunt would look in the back of the bus and I would be on the ground fighting with somebody on the way to school. This was the story that I was told. It's like, my aunt said, she was like, I used to be so embarrassed. I was in kindergarten, but 
I would be in the back of the bus fighting somebody. You scrapping with people even in kindergarten? In kindergarten, like no, not not kindergarten. Kindergarten, that's what you kindergarten. Kindergarten, you you scrapping? Okay, in the back of the bus, just a fighting. Oh, so, you know, I, I like to put my spin on that now and say, you know, I am definitely a fighter. I've learned now to be a fighter in spirit as opposed to these hands. But let's not get crazy. OK, don't try Jesus. Don't try me, really. <laughs> <laughs> so now you you were the kid scrapping in the bus in kind kindergarten. And as mm-hmm. you grew, let's go ahead and just take us into the home. What was home life like? For you, home life for me um, back then, and I and I want to preference this. I'm gonna put this in the frame of mind of a child. It was rough for me being the middle kid and being so rebellious. And I had a a mom who was she was a teenage mother, and she was hell bent on me not being like her, but didn't realize that the way that I felt like I was being treated was going to end me on that same exact road. She was extremely, extremely tough. It was tough love. It wasn't that, oh, I'm going to hug you and say I love you. It was like, no, I'm about to slap you in your mouth and you better go somewhere and sit down. Kids are to be seen and not heard. And they were, she was just very, very tough. My father was the ultimate provider. He didn't really get involved with us in terms of like the kid stuff unless my mother called him in and said they are cutting up and then he's going to handle business, right? But for the most part, my father father was a very stoic man. He, you know, went to work, made sure the bills were paid, you know, just that guy. He always, now my father was also the guy that on our front porch, he always had like the weightlifting bench. So he definitely did the working out thing. Like he was always, you know, physically fit and working out. So that was, that was mom and my mother and father. My brother was always the golden child as far as my mother was concerned. Listen, he could do no wrong, okay, in my mother's eyes. And that was the, that was the way that was going to be. And then my sister, who was the baby, she's five years younger than me. That was my daddy's girl. So I always felt like I was in the middle and I really didn't have anybody. And so a lot of the fight was fighting to be seen and fighting to be heard because I felt like I didn't have anyone but my aunt. My mother is one of 12 and she had six sisters. So I had my aunts on my mom's side and my father was one of five. So definitely had, you know, my aunts on my dad's side. So that was kind of what home life felt to me. I felt like literally the one in the middle who wasn't seen, who wasn't heard. So she was just going to make noise. With your siblings, were there moments that, because you said you were the outspoken one, were there moments that there was a clash with you and your parents or was it like specifically with your mother like okay girl there's only one woman in this house it ain't it ain't two where are those moments absolutely absolutely they call my mother my mother and her sister the amazon women so absolutely there were clashes there were clashes because when you don't feel like you are are loved at all. I, I felt like my parents did not love me at all. Let's be very clear. And so it was nothing they could really say or do to me that I respected because I felt like they didn't care anything about me. Of course, there's a reason why I felt that way. There was a very specific thing that happened to me in my life that I felt that way. So it wasn't just one of those things where I kind of like like made it up in my head. It was a feeling. There was something that, that happened to me at 13 years old that changed the trajectory of my life. 
And let's dive into that a little. For you to say at that young age, mm-hmm. that you didn't feel your parents love you. Because not many kids feel that. As, there's not a lot of kids who feel that. But you mm-hmm. felt this from a young age. Let's dive into how did it even get to that point to you felt that they didn't love you? So at 13 years old, um, my my aunt then, and at the time, I'm going to tell you, I was 13. I can't remember. I, I don't know if she married him before this or after this, but this was her, her living partner. He ended up, you know, touching me in a very sexual way. And the reason why he was able to get to me, and I'm going to say this because I think this is such an important and pivotal point in this story, especially for the, for moms of whether you have sons or daughters, the reason why he was able to get to me is because I was always told that I was a bad child. I was always kind of like made to feel that I was less than because, you know, I was, you know, unconventional in every way. I was a tomboy. So I was told all the time that I was bad and I was, you know, just a bunch of stuff. So when he came into my aunt's life and essentially came into my life, how he won me over was he told me that I was pretty. I had never heard that. He told me that um, I was a good kid and I was just misunderstood. Like, they don't understand you. I do. I get it. You know, like they treat, you know, and he would tell me like they treat the others better than you because they think you're bad, but I know that you're not. So he made me feel seen heard and love. And as a result of that, one weekend, um, my cousins were up from down south. My aunt was up here. So because my mother had 12 brothers and sisters, I had an aunt that was older than me and I had an aunt that was younger than me. So my aunt that was one year older than me, she was there. My other cousin, we all he was going to take us all out to the movies. But I got to sit in the front of the car. I got to sit in the front of the car because I was special. You know, I I was, he saw me differently. Now, I didn't pay attention to, because I'm 13, I hadn't had sex yet that in the front of the car he was touching my knee and rubbing my 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 thigh and for me I don't, I don't know like I'm a tomboy I wasn't even thinking about sex at that point so I'm just thinking well he loves me because I didn't know what it meant to have genuine affection other than to be yelled at or to be where I felt talked down to so the fact that he was touching me and I always wanted that for myself I I thought that this was just him showing me love and I'm gonna sidebar for a second my mom, her father and her stepmother lived in Rhode, Providence, Rhode Island. They would send me there every summer as a kid. And she had Harlequin romance books, uh, like stacks of them. So as a kid, I'm talking about from the age of like seven, when I first started reading, I would read those books. So that's why I want to give context as to why him touching me. I wanted to, you know, feel that kind of love because I thought, you know, from reading books, like that was romance. And it's like, oh my God, if somebody loves you, they'll show you that they'll hug you do all these things that didn't happen in my house. So I didn't think of it as, you know, him trying to, you know, do something harmful. I thought he loved me. So long story short, we go to the movies. We go to the movies. He asked me, was I cold? And I said, yeah, because I had on short. So he took his jacket off and put it over my lap. Didn't think anything of it, but he put his hand underneath it and was like rubbing my my leg. Now, I'ma just be real. I remember it feeling uncomfortable, but because I wasn't too sure and because I had always been told that I was dramatic or I, or I made things up, I didn't want to think that he was doing something because again, all in my mind, everything I did 
wasn't right or I didn't think right. That's that's kind of the way I was made to feel. So later on that night, after we get back to the movies, everybody gets ready to go to bed. I'm laying on the couch. He's sitting at the end of the couch. No big deal. We all, I mean, cousins everywhere. Everybody's falling asleep. I doze off and I fall asleep and I feel this hand um, starting to touch me. This is the moment I didn't realize until later, but this is the moment when, when they say God is real, you know it. I woke up from him like grabbing, like grabbing my 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 butt really, really hard and like going up my my shorts. And I remember a voice and it was clear as I'm talking to you right now say roll over on the floor and pretend like you're asleep like i heard this i'm 13 i heard it but and it's so crazy that instinctively i knew to trust the voice so that's exactly what i did i like like moan like i was like tossing and turning and i rolled off the couch and i fell on the floor and i listened to the voice that said pretend like you're asleep so he stepped back and he said hey mo mo and i pretended like i didn't hear him and he was like you fell off the couch i didn't answer he reached down with both of his hands and gripped my breast and then he walked into the bathroom and he was in there for a minute before he went into my aunt's room and that was that was so scary to me because I trusted him. And that next morning when we, when my aunt and him got up, my, my younger aunt, I said to her, we got to get out of here. Like, we got to go. And she's like, what happened? I was like, listen, we got to leave. And so when we left, I told her the story of what happened. She actually told my, my mother's other sister, because there's a bunch of them, it's six of them. And so they eventually tell my mother so what happened how I found this out was my I called my aunt one morning the, the, and say I was like hey like what's going on like everybody's like you know call my mother and I could hear my aunt scream in the background she's lying and she was like I told I'm like what so I go to school that day and I'm like I don't know what's gonna happen because again no one ever believed me I was I was I made up things I was dramatic right so I was like oh god what's gonna happen Well, my mother and another one of her sisters came and picked me up from school that day. And they asked me what happened. I told them and my aunt believed me. Um, This was her, this was her, another one of her sisters. And she was like, like, I believe her, which was like odd for me that, that my, you know, my mother believed me too. But as a result of this, I heard, this was the next day, I heard my mother talking to my father in the bedroom. I heard my mother say to my father, um, he had the nerve to say, like she was dreaming and can we come over to dinner and talk about it? But Mm. after that, I heard nothing else, nothing. It was as if it, it never happened. We didn't talk about it, nothing. Couple of months later, the same aunt that's married to the guy who touched me is having a having a party. I believe it was Halloween or something, because this happened in the summertime because it was still warm out. My mother said we were going. And I was like, I'm not going over there, but you gotta remember who I am in the family. I'm the rebellious one. I talk back. So she was like, You are not you. If I say you're going, you're gonna go, you ain't gonna tell me what you're gonna do. And she walked me back in that door. The day she walked me back in that door was the day. I decided I didn't matter to them, so they no longer mattered to me because they did nothing about it, they said nothing about it, and you took me back in the door. Wow. Game changer. So, Mo, you go up into this party, and Mm -hmm. you're there, you're back face-to-face with this gentleman Mm -hmm. and the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. Oh, what goes through your head after you experience what you experience, and then the following time you go into this house again, Mm -hmm. what goes through your head? First of all, you pretend as if nothing happened, right? You pretend, so I'm with my cousins, but 
I didn't, I didn't process this till later. You got to understand like my mind didn't process it till later. What happened from uh, what I learned in therapy was almost like a switch. It was like a switch. Like they don't care nothing about you. It was almost like a different voice showed up, Mm. right? They don't care nothing about you. No one's going to protect you, but you, that's what happened. You move with this mindset of no one is going to protect you, but you. So Mo, once you move with this mindset, who is Mo as this young teenager with this mindset now? Oh my God, so confused and mixed up, looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, if you don't think that nobody in your your home loves you and you have been fighting to get their attention all this time, what do you do? You turn to boys, right? Okay. So (laughs) I met my, now my oldest son's father and at the time, you know, it's so interesting what happens to a teen's mind. I wasn't even thinking about sex, but all of a sudden, now sex enters the picture, okay? So I turned into this almost promiscuous, rebellious, and you, if you thought I was bad before, now it's worse because now I'm running away. Mm. Um, I didn't care. Like, I would be in school. I always kind of got in trouble in school, but it got worse. Like I was always getting suspended for something and it was always me to be fighting or talking back to the teachers. I really just stopped caring. Mm. That that's, that's what happened to me. I just stopped caring and I just wanted to fight everybody. Wow. I became angry. What, mm-hmm. Once that's happening, mom's getting the call. Pop's getting the call. Yep. Tarnisha's suspended again. <laughs> so when they're coming and they're, they're dealing with you, Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they're probably giving you the, the, the lecture. Oh, you better stop and blah, blah, blah. Mo. And you're you getting your butt. Listen, this is this is back in the day, okay? Right. We, we talk about the 80s. You get, like the 70s, late 70s, 80s, you getting a beating. Yeah, you know Damn. what I mean. You you know you know what I mean. Like you start with the lecture and then the beating comes with the lecture and then the lecture comes in after the end and then you get finished off with a beating. But I'm saying like when they were coming at you, and they were saying what they're saying. Was it going in one ear and out the other? Or was it like, all right, I still got the plan. When y'all finish with me, I'm dipping from the house, so. Yeah, pretty much. I didn't care nothing they say. I was mm. like, whatever. Mm. <laughs> it, to me, I heard it all before. It's right. nothing that you could say about me that I didn't hear, so I don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go out here and do whatever it is that I'm gonna do. So Mo, mm-hmm. reckless teenager, rebellious, mm-hmm. moving. Let's go deeper into this teenager as as a high school young lady and leaving out high, getting ready to leave out high school and mm-hmm. going into the pre-world. So who is this Mo now? This 17, 18 year old Mo. I was 15. The very so what the very first time um after I met my son's father, again, falling in love, thinking that I'm in love, I end up getting pregnant. Now, at this time, again, I'm only 15 years. I'm 15 now at this time. And what happened was after I got pregnant, I'm like, oh, just having sex. You ain't even thinking about any of the things back then. His sisters tried to help me like get an abortion. They were trying to give me their ID and all this other stuff. And it just didn't work out. People were telling me to drink nail polish. I mean, all this crazy stuff. Yeah, it was like, back then it was nuts, okay? We didn't have internet, any of that stuff that exists today. Like, you just heard all this stuff. You got to get rid of the baby. And what ended up happening is the same aunt that I told about my aunt's then partner touching me, I told her about being pregnant. And by this time, I'm almost, I'm like four months 
pregnant at this time. And she tells my mother. My mother then comes in the bathroom after all this time, not even noticing how big I was getting, because I was kind of hiding it too. She couldn't believe it. So they actually took me then. This, this is with this is some old school stuff, y'all. Y'all talk about toxic and narcissistic today. Y'all have no idea what these what the 80s and babies went through. Okay, the 70, 80s babies. They took me to his his house. His mother was in the living room. He was there. They told him he could leave. This is what they and told the boyfriend. The damn boyfriend. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they told him he could leave. Like, like he didn't have any part in this, right? Mm. Like I got pregnant by myself. He could leave. So he goes in the kitchen. He's fixing him something, something to eat. I'm in the living room with his mother and my mother. My mother basically saying like, listen, I'm not taking care of no babies. Okay. And she's going to have an abortion. It's going to cost, I believe at the time back then it was like a thousand dollars or something like that. And you know, basically what you got on it. And his mother was like, she didn't have, she didn't really, she didn't have any money or whatever. But we, so we left. And my mother, I don't know how she knew about the place in Inglewood, New Jersey. I don't know if it's probably, I think it's still there too. I don't know how she knew about it, but she um, took me and they told her, well, they told us at the time it's going to be a two day procedure. We go in and the doctor like does an ultrasound and asks me, did I want to know the sex? Now I'm going to be very honest with you because I just think that this is important to understand the psyche of a 15 year old who just didn't have a clue really what she was doing. I know a lot of times people think that, oh, you know, you, you, the 15 year olds like adults and have common sense. They have no real common sense at 15. You just are doing things and thinking that you are just like nothing can ever happen to exactly. you. Yep. Right. Yep. And so I wanted to know the sex, but I did, I was scared. My mother was in the room. So it was like, I just knew to shut my mouth. And my mother was like, just come on. Like, you know, basically like we don't have time for all this. So they did a two-day procedure. So the first day they put these six in me, I guess to dilate me at the time. I really don't know all the ins and outs of the procedure because I never wanted to go back and find it out. So we had to leave and we got a hotel room. And in that hotel room, I must have moaned and tossed and turned in pain. I was like, in, I was in pain. Even though they gave us med gave me medication, my mom took my sister and went to the mall and I moaned and groaned and moaned and groaned and moaned and groaned. And they came back. And again, it was a hard night for me. And this. It's what's, what's even worse is it traumatized my little sister too. And the next morning we got up, we had to be there by like six, seven in the morning or something like that. And they vacuumed out and sent me home and it was to never be talked about again. And why is this story important? Because they did all of that for me to turn around a year later, end up pregnant by the same boy because we stayed together and now I'm going to run away. Okay, because I'm not doing that again. She's pregnant. Oh. Oh, man. She got pregnant her senior year of high school. And it was some some crazy things that happened because being nine months pregnant back then, this is 1993, okay? You, the, it, wasn't, it wasn't a lot of teen mothers, okay? Um, that wasn't the thing back then. Right. So I was pregnant. I remember being nine months pregnant and I had gotten into a, a little bit of an argument with one of the security guards there. And I remember him saying like, you ain't gonna be nothing but a welfare mother anyway. Like basically saying I'm gonna be a bum. And so I heard a lot of things about myself that I was gonna be a bum. I was gonna be locked up. I wasn't gonna be anything, you know? You know, I get pregnant. I have my son March 29th, 93. I still graduate from high school, but I leave high school with still a chip on my shoulder, still looking for love in the wrong places. Now I'm with a new guy um, who is not my son's 
you know, father at the time. And it's interesting. It's an interesting point in my life, though, because my son changed everything. I had him at 17, but he kind of changed my thought pattern a little bit because in my mind, I was like, my son is going to have the world. Mm. He's never going to feel what I'm feeling. And if anybody looks at him wrong, I'm willing to take their life because he will never feel what I felt. He will always know that his mother loved him. So if anybody does anything to him, I'm going to jail. Like that was where I was, like my head, right? He's not gonna, so that to me meant I had to work very, very hard and I had to prove everybody wrong. So everybody who said I wasn't gonna be anything. And then my mother thought when I had this baby, she was gonna have to step in and do all these things. She'll even tell you to this day. When I gave birth to that baby, she would say, she didn't have to get up in the middle of the night any of that, I handled it. I instantly became like this, I'm gonna prove everybody wrong. Everything you say about me, you're gonna eat those words. It was, so it was very interesting. So even though I still had some of that anger and rebellion, but my son changed my life. He changed my life. Now I still got into trouble. So although I wanted to get it together because I was dealing with the wrong you know, type of guys, I got into some trouble. The guy I was with, he ended up you know, cheating on me. And I ended up going to the girl's house, kicking in the door. It just became this whole court case. And what happened was my mom knew a recruiter, the army recruiter, and they made it so if I go to the army that I wouldn't get into trouble. And so I wouldn't have to deal with serving any sort of sentence or time or any of that. And at the back then you could do that, which was great. I wish they still had that today because that, my son plus that equals how I'm sitting in front of you today. The military, Oh, that was everything that I needed. Everything that I so I ended up having to go to the military at nineteen. It's just funny how you just made it seem like it was nothing. Yeah, so dude did something, found a girl, kicked down the door <laughs> like it was nothing. Like I was going to the corner store, like jeez, Mo. So that's how we got to that point. Yeah. So we had had your son now in military. Yeah. Mo hits the military and <laughs> get off the bus. Drop the bag. <gasps> Mo, what was this like, this culture shock like that? You come from from Jersey and then hop in on the, the bus. And then, from Be the clear. city. Right, in, in the, the city. city. And then you hop on the bus and then you're with cows and, and, and some other things that you don't even know that you think is cricket. But um, you come off this bus and they just start barking and everything. Mo, put us in that space. What was this like? I was like, what in the <laughs> hell is going on? I, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. And it's so crazy because my recruiter tried, he was a great guy. He tried to get me prepared, but because I was so angry and I didn't trust anybody, when you don't trust your own parents, you don't trust anybody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I didn't have any trust. So it was like getting, I mean, I, re I just remember these people yelling, but I was so angry at the time, even though they was yelling, I was like, well, what you going to do? That's what you told them. <laughs> Just like, well, what, what are we going to do? Like, but at the same token, I had fear in my heart. I was afraid that if I, I knew that if I messed up, I was going to have to go back and face that judge. Oh. I had fear. Oh. So there was two parts to me, right? Now, I don't know if it was true or not. That judge put the fear of God in me, okay, in her chambers. Like, I didn't know if it was true or not, but she made it seem like 
that I would come back, I would serve time and, you know, I wouldn't have my son. You know, she made it like it was, I mean, she, and again, I'm, I'm 18. So I don't know whether it's true or not true. I just know at the time it felt like this is do or die for you. So I'm like, it, what it did was it cracked me wide open. I had never cried like I cried in Fort Leonard, Missouri, because now I got to do something with these emotions because it really wasn't anger, it was hurt. But I don't know that. I don't even I don't even understand feelings, okay? So I got to do something with this. So now I'm crying. It cracked me wide open because for the first time I also felt seen and heard by my drill sergeant. I will never forget Sergeant Catino. I will never forget her. She was a black woman. She was hard, very, very hard. Kind of like my mom in some ways, but different. Where she she saw me though. She knew I would get into trouble, but she would talk to me in such a way that she would like give me different ways to go about it. She was like, you not wrong, but the way you're going about it is wrong. So nobody's gonna hear you. And she gave me a different way to see things. Yeah, she called me names and stuff. <laughs> Cause I would like, I wasn't used to working out like that. And so, you know, she would call me names and I would constantly get into trouble. I was the person who, if you were in the military in your army, you know this, I would have to do front back goals on the lawn it, with them spraying me with the hose. Mm. Like I was just a hot mess, mm. okay? I was bad, mm. I was bad. My bunkie, we locked her in the locker. <laughs> we were, we were terrible, okay? I was the person who said I was going, I was signed up to go to chapel on Sunday because if you go to church, you get out of cleaning. But we would like, <laughs> We would go to Burger King. We were terrible, but it was the best place I could have ever been. It really helped me to, to go about things in a different way than I had ever thought about going before because I had to face people who, there were, there were men there who had strong beliefs that women shouldn't be in the army back then. And I will never forget, you know, the, the guy who's actually like, I, it's not line leader, but I can't think of his direct title right now. He had a real strong problem with this. So when he would say stuff, he would always talk down to the women. And of course, remember, I'm the rebellious one. I got the big mouth, right? I would speak back and it caused me to get into real big trouble because the one thing you don't do in the military is you don't talk back, right? To, to whoever is outranking you at the time. Okay, you don't talk back. But I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, you not, I don't care who you think you are. You ain't gonna talk to me, it's got away. So Sergeant Catino in that, she had to punish me. This is why I'm saying I respect her. She had to punish me. So she brought me in. She asked me what happened though. And I told her everything and she had to punish me. So I had to run, I had to run with my gun and I had to take my gun and it would go from the top of my head to my chest, down to my knee, back to my chest up to the top of my head. So I had to like run in place with that. Then I had to go get the gas mask and put it on and run in place with my gun, with my rifle. Um, like she punished me, but let me tell you what she also did. After she punished me, she rectified the situation in such a way to let him know that you will never do that to her again. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it made me feel seen, heard and protected. During your tenure there in the military. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once it's over and <laughs> It's time for Mo to go back, get on the bus and go back. Mm -hmm. Mo, what is this like and who's this Mo when she gets out of the military? More driven. She's more driven than ever. Um, so she, she leaves out. She's actually, you know, seeing a great man at the time. I started dating him right before I went into the, to the military. Good upstanding guy, working, work two jobs type of man. 
great man. And now that I had dealt with some of my stuff, I was in a much better place. So I came home like on a mission, right? So a mission to better myself. And so that's how I landed in corporate America. Um, One of my friends, his mother worked for a Fortune 500 company that I'm still at today. It'll be 28 years in September. Um, And yeah, 28 years. And so what happened was she said, you guys need to find a job. Y'all need to do something. Cause I was working odds and in jobs. I'm telling you, I worked. I worked three jobs. I worked at a doctor's office um, doing medical records during the day. Then I also worked at Caldor. I worked at Caldor. And then I also worked at um, Plainfield Health Center doing medical records in the evening. So when I say I worked, I worked. And so it was all because I wanted my son to have a great life. It was never, it wasn't about me at that point. It was all about him and what I wanted to have for him and what he was never gonna be and never gonna do and all this other stuff, right? So I was really, really focused on that. So I've been working all these odds and end jobs and still kind of hanging out. I'm still a teenager. I mean, you know, still, you know, in my early 20s. So I'm like still like not making great decisions, but good decisions. Okay. So his mom said to us, like, my job is hiring. Go take the test and see if you get in. I went and took the test because I'm going to work. That's one. My parents taught me work ethic. That's the one thing that they did. They worked their behinds off. So I'm going to go work because I had great example of what it was to work. Right. So I took the test, got into the company, and I'm still a little, I'm going to say it, okay? I'm still a little ghetto, (laughs) okay? I'm still a little ghetto. Um, (laughs) I'm going to just say it. That inner city was still in me, all right? Of course, of course. (laughs) So, but I landed this job. It was as if I knew I could be more. When I landed that job, it was as if I knew I could be more. Like I knew I I worked hard. I never, my son was never gonna be an excuse. I was never late for work. If he was sick, I figured it out before I got there. I never took days off. I was a worker through and through. Well, you're at this corporate spot. You mm-hmm. still got the hood in you regardless. <laughs> and you know, switching it up. Hi, how are you? What you said? But yeah, yes. I get it, I get it. But thank you for calling. There you go. And then hang up and say, look, I'm going to bust your head. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. So as you go through life, as you said, Mm -hmm. military still, it quelled some things that you were Mm -hmm. that you were fighting with for a long time. When did the rest, the remnant of it come head to head with you? Like, okay. Yeah, you dealt with that when you was when you was doing push-ups and, and running in place and all that. But now we coming blow for blow now. When did that happen? I would say so I ended up marrying the guy that I was with before mm-hmm. um, I went into the military. We ended up, you know, getting married, purchasing my first home at 25 years old. And I had another daughter, Alexis, but he came with two children. So a lot of people don't know this story about me and my ex-husband is he had two children prior to me and then I had my son. When we came together, we didn't do the whole step mommy, daddy thing. That's not what it was. His daughter's mother was 
in her life. She lived with her grandmother, but his son's mother wasn't really in his life like that. So I still, I just became mom. Now they didn't call me ma, they called me Mo. Everybody calls me that. Um, and then my son at the time, you know, he actually, he now calls him dad. That's, you know, that's been, that was his, that was his constant in his life. Because when I got with him, my son was four at the time. Oh, So still, yeah. that's, that's who he knew his dad. So we got married, we bought our own home. I'm thinking I'm doing, you know, the right things. I have a family now. I'm working this job. And I was, even though I worked for corporate America, because I'm a worker, I always work two jobs. So, and he worked too. It was just that being in inner city, what happened was we bought a house and it was a beautiful block at the time, but across the street, this is when the gang activity started to come into the place that I, that I lived. It was always kind of there here in, in different areas, but it started to come on my block. They actually had a gang initiation. I will never forget it on the lawn across the street from my house. And that was it for me. I was like, okay, we are, we're, we're going to take our kids and move them from here. Yeah. So my son, who you heard me talk about that I had at 17, now he's in middle school. Okay, so he's he's sixth grade and I'm like, okay, it's time for us to to move now because now this is moving in. And what I wasn't going to do to me was lose my kids to any sort of gangs or listen, gang violence of any sense, because there was a there was a guy riding a bike down the street next door, like literally woke up in the morning with spotlights and everything. Somebody had shot him in the head Mm. and his like like his matter was on my neighbor's car. Oh, man. So that was a pivotal moment in my life that I didn't know because it forced me to, I have to change my environment. My environment is not gonna change. So either I stay and let the environment shape me or I move to another environment. That was a turning point for all of us. Because that's when I said, this is not serving who I am becoming. This is not how I saw the vision that I had for my family, even though I didn't know much about vision in the way that they talk about it now. But the vision I have for my son and my children wasn't that. So we had to change of environment and it was very scary. I need people to know that because it's like, how'd you make the decision? I decided. It wasn't about us having so much money. We didn't have a lot of money. It wasn't about us, you know, knowing people. We didn't know a lot of people. It was me deciding that that environment was not going to be the environment that I was going to raise my children in at all. So we made that decision. And what, what that decision led us to was a good friend of mine had already moved to Pennsylvania. Her and her sister became realtors. So we worked with them to build our home in Pennsylvania. Wow. So we actually took our kids now that took our children from any city and brought them to the suburbs of the suburbs of the suburbs. <laughs> of and oh, I've been in, I've been in the suburbs of the suburbs of Pennsylvania. I've been there. Woo. Yeah, the suburbs of the suburbs of the mm. suburbs of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So complete culture shock. So we went to being one of many to to like one of none, right? We were the chocolate chip in the bowl of milk. Okay, right, that's the only way to put it. We were the chocolate chip in the bowl of milk, with an extreme opposite, right? Because my job, I felt, was to provide, protect, and I also wanted my children 
to get knowledge that I didn't have because when you come from an inner city and that's all you're around and you're not around a lot of other cultures, when those cultures move, you don't understand their movements Mm -hmm. until it's too late sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? And so you start to think that people like you and care about you when you, and then you'll slowly find out that that's not the truth of that, right? They don't move how you think they move. You say what you want about inner city people, especially in New Jersey, they say that we're rude. I don't say that we're rude. I say that we're clear. Right. You will have clarity. You will know where you stand. What I say is what I mean, right? What I mean is what I said. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I didn't get that until I went into the military and then corporate America. I wanted my children to understand the ecosystem of how the world works and they weren't going to get that there. So it was bigger than just what was happening in, in the in the town in terms of, you know, gangs and violence. It was also them understanding how the world works because it looks very different than the fishbowl that we were in. Meaning when I say fishbowl, anytime you're in an environment and in a city in a place that you haven't left from, that's your fishbowl. Yep. So now we're in PA. Hi, hi, Anthony. How are you? <laughs> Good morning. You're saying that Good to your morning. name. Good morning. Oh my God, how are you today? <laughs> oh, we're all going to the bus stop at six thirty. Are we going to meet at the bus stop? Yes, we are. Right. We're going to have pampered <laughs> chef parties now. It's so real. And you, you know, so you know the beauty of that though. Outside looking in, I th- outside meaning when I wasn't in that environment, I thought so many things about the environment but so many beautiful things happen as a result of me being in this environment i actually for the first time really truly understood that anything was possible it wasn't until i got outside of my fishbowl that i could get to know other people that i can make that decision to know listen anything is possible there's somebody who my dream is their reality yeah i love that. that was huge for me i love that and that is true. I think that's when, as an inner city product myself, is like when we we used to just think that homes and all that that was only for white people. You know what I'm saying? We're like, yeah, that's only for them. We because again, our environment was an apartment. That was it. Mm-hmm. Or from when mm-hmm. you're coming outside, it was just the block that you was on. But you didn't know there was a longer block that you know there was other people's on the other side mm-hmm. of it that you didn't pay attention to because this is all you saw in your fishbowl. Thanks for listening to part one with Tarnisha. Check out part two.